0: body thank you for tuning in to episode number 8 of the learning curve podcast my name is bob bowden of choice media and i'm joined as always by my uh, charming and informed co-host dr Kara kendall coming to us from yet another undisclosed location dr kendall are you there
1: i am here in my undisclosed location thank you bob great to be okay. with you
0: we are coming to you uh, now now this uh, podcast is being released on friday october 25th and so Uh, It's possible by the time you listen to this, something called the Chicago teacher strike might have been settled. But I feel like (laughs) this is my segue. I I feel like that even if it has been settled by you, gentle listener, by the time you're hearing our words, there are still a lot of lessons to take from this. What I can tell you is it's not. It's not been settled by the time of this recording. Friday today, marking the seventh day of missed classes for Chicago students, because the 25,000 members of the Chicago Teachers Union are striking, uh, and you know we have this CNN saying, ca- calling the thousands of teachers, the word, the term they use is, flooded the streets of downtown Chicago to deliver a message to City Hall. They won't stop striking until they get what they want, and so that's what that's how CNN frames it. And, and I guess I'm just. As an overview, Kara, first, you know, do you think this is fun for them? I almost feel you can, you, you can sense their to core enthusiasm from the photos and the video clips. It's like fight the man, we're gonna shut this city down. Strident vituperative it's antagonism.
1: Fight, fight the woman, Bob.
0: Oh, Please. okay, whatever. The per- fight the person, but you know, just that, that you know, what if you'll pardon the editorialization. Naked personal gain spun as a blow for high-minded fairness would be the principle <laughs> I'm saying. But uh, what I'm seeing is I think they love this. I think they cheer and yell, and it's fun. And, you know, he, here's CTU President Jesse Sharkey saying, "Quote in the CNN piece, we're willing to strike until we get the job done. We are not giving up the fight until we get what is just and what is right. What is just and what is right? Okay, so." What is what is the city already offered the teachers? Huh? Well, because they they apparently don't have what's just yet. They apparently don't have what's right yet. What they've been offered is a 16 percent raise of their salaries over the next five years or nearly nineteen thousand dollar raise in five years. The average teacher, the average teacher will making nearly one hundred thousand dollars. The city has already offered to double the number of social workers, double the number of nurses in schools. uh, And they have said, of course, they've said they'll continue the cap on charter school options for parents. So no more than one (laughs) percent student growth in charter schools. That's what the city's offered. So, you know, they're saying, oh, we just want what's right and just. Apparently, Kara, 16 percent raise is not
1: quite just
0: yet. What do you say?
1: you know, Bob, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've been really trying to find that generosity of spirit that I that I want to be able to channel. And so here's where I'm landing. So, okay, first of all, with generosity of spirit in mind, here's the other number that we need to keep in mind. 300,000 students, 300,000 students out of school for five days. And so how many parents is that absolutely going bazonkers trying to figure out how to take it? So that's beside the point. But Here's the thing. First of all, teachers should be making $100,000 a year. The question isn't should good teachers be making the money they deserve? The question is how can we afford it? The other part of this is that the things that the Chicago's Teachers Union is asking for is not, they're not, these are things that I think everybody, Lori Lightfoot probably wants these things for kids. I want these things for kids. This to me raises two larger questions. And the first one is the question of tactics. So, our schools, um, social service agencies, maybe they have to, there, there's a long standing debate about that, and I, I don't even want to get into that filibuster, right? But instead of striking, what other avenues, what other routes other than collective bargaining could they be taking in partnership with the city, in partnership with community services, so that they're not actually harming the very children that they claim to be trying to serve, that they claim to be trying to trying to protect? We do need these things in schools, and Chicago, more than a lot of places, needs these things in schools, but it's not the what, it's the how. So this, to me, raises really important philosophical questions, not only around how do we need to be thinking about social supports for our kids who bears that cost what what kind of community partners do we need to be able to do that but when are we ever going to get to a point where teachers unions will realize that striking is actually more damaging than anything this is not the productive way that adults get things done i
0: think it's most damaging to their brand quite frankly i think it's most it's it, it, in a way lays bare the real truth which is that uh, they are, you know, they say we're fighting for students when, if you put this through some sort of truth serum detector machine, it would mean, they would say well, we're fighting for ourselves. I, politicians- I have to
1: say, Bob, I, I don't think so, because if their brand were really that harmed, would we have going on what we have in the Democratic primaries with absolutely every single candidate probably in the pockets of the teachers' unions? And if their brand were so harmed, uh, as we thought it was in 2012, would they be doing this again?
0: Uh, so, I would say yeah, my response to that, it's a good it's a good reply. My response to that is just that, that now it's become such a tradition. They got so much in two thousand twelve by striking. They got so much again in two thousand fifteen by nearly striking, right up to the deadline. They've actually done another strike now in two thousand nineteen. They're getting to say, Hey, this is great. We should just strike every time.
1: And we should say whatever you offer us, it's not fair. Whatever well, you the offer the fact us, that the school system is on the verge of bankruptcy if it's not yeah, what,
0: anything they offer us is not just. We will just say it's uh, you know terrible, and that you know we st- we we and we need more. And of course they they uh, there's a, a CNN video clip where the woman says it's really not about pay. And you know I was tweeting out, oh really? The 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 mayor should play that clip at a press conference, saying, oh I guess we'll rescind the 16 percent salary increase offer because they're telling CNN it's not about pay. Well, that's a lie. <laughs> they, that's, they've, they've tried to learn the media manipulation game and trying to how to spin the message to be different than it really is. But I mean, I, I also wanted to also point out Joseph O'Call. He's a CPS teacher who's speaking out against the strike. He says – I'm working for Chicago Public Schools. I'm working for the kids. I'm not working for the union. So he's crossed the picket lines telling the CBS affiliate in Chicago, I'm just one teacher trying to do his job, trying to take responsibility to be a teacher, an effective teacher for the students. And so you have some of that. But yes, I, my, my general answer to you is that, is that at the be- you know, the, the, first, the strike in 2012 to which you referred, well, had been the first in a long time, they're now starting to get so regular that I think they will be, have gone to. I think this is actually going to the well too many times in terms of public opinion. In my view, this will start to, uh, you know, as I sometimes say, they call it a teacher strike. I call it charter school advertising. I think maybe with this latest incarnation, it's <laughs> I wish they, that
1: were right. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you're watching the charter schools in Chicago, uh, a lot of them are unionizing as well. So this uh, is. I, uh, you know, and I would what say really too- hope this is is a larger lesson about what we what the next you know wave of school reform needs to consider. Yeah,
0: well, and and and, and to your point about you know kids, yeah, I'm sure it's a it's a inconvenience uh, for parents, or maybe worse. Maybe it's a you know a great difficulty to some. But I mean, and so my view is that with. uh you know, missing five or six or seven or eight days of school will be undetectable in the kid's career in terms of discerning which kids went, you know, had a teacher strike in their CPS career and which kids didn't. After all, there's 20 percent proficiency for both reading and math for for eighth graders in Chicago. Science proficiency in Chicago, seven yeah. percent. So I actually think that that the more they strike now, they're start it's starting to lay bare the the problems with the monopoly model, and the and the sad irony of how they say when it comes to issues of choice, oh, we want to collaborate, we want to cooperate, we don't want to compete with other schools. We're all about collaboration and cooperation. Uh, except when their is questioned. Then now, now there's no there's, there's no cooperation. Then it's we it's a hundred hundred thousand dollars per teacher is still not right, still not just. We've learned every strike gets us more money. But let's move on to our next story of the week, which is. In the world of politics, uh, Elizabeth Warren may just force a discussion of Democrats to finally confront the, well, opposing points of view, polar views regarding charter schools. Uh, 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 You know, incidentally, I would say Bill de Blasio would have done that more in terms of finally confronting this. He he said he hates charter schools, Bill de Blasio, (laughs) mayor of New York City. But Warren released. Is he
1: even on the stage at this point? But yes, Warren, Warren um, in, you know, coming from my great state with some of the highest performing charter schools in the nation, um, has has yet again managed to just um, uh, dash the dreams of the 20,000 kids on waiting lists that we have in Massachusetts and absolutely, um, you know, I don't know where she thinks she's going to get uh, if she watched the election in Florida where parents of color especially who um, were for school choice um, really flipped the vote from Gillum to DeSantis I think that she it, it would be a very instructive lesson so the thing
0: about Warren, well, Warren of course talking much more than choice she she wants to quadruple Title I funding for traditional public schools which is an additional 450 billion over the next 10 years in her plan to quote help Ensure that all children get a high-quality public education," unquote, because throwing money at this has to work, right? It always, yeah, always because federal always
1: dollars is the way to do that. But yeah, okay.
0: let's let's it's it's like let's have more unaccountable people. We'll do. We already have unaccountable people. If we could just have more unaccountable people, we should hope that that should help. And she also said, for those who don't know, don't know, she will said she'll commit an additional twenty billion dollars each year to IDEA grants and expand IDEA funding for three to five-year-old children, pre-K IDEA, in other okay. words. All right. And so wondering, of course, if that includes, does she love the private school placement part of IDEA? You know, no word on that. Uh, but um, but then, you know, she's going to spend $100 billion over 10 years in the excellence grants to any public schools. So, you know— Throwing this money, you know, federalizing so much more of education than had than has already been the case, and, and my my general response to this Kara is that, you know, just how politicized is this going to be? If you think back to round one of Race to the Top the, under the Obama administration, which I supported elements of Race to the Top, but you know they ignored Florida, for example, and praised. Delaware. They are supposed to pick what states had the best reform plans and give federal money to encourage those states to move forward with with reform. So they had this point rating system the federal government did, where teams of distinguished experts allocated points based on their sophisticated criteria, and you know, concluding that Delaware had submitted a superior reform plan to Florida, which was an absolute joke, you know, by almost any standard of measure. But as long as you know, these politicized decisions are are you know, have complex spreadsheets that enshroud them with these, you know, so-called experts, then we like say, oh, just more federal money thrown. You know, the experts will decide where the federal money should be thrown. And so often it's wasted.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, listen, this is just the other thing about Liz Warren taking the stand. First of all, I, I'm disheartened, but I believe to be true that the majority of Americans, this is going to be just like a little blip on the radar. It's those of us that exist in the world of education policy that are really worried about this impact. But on a larger level, what this shows to me is somebody who grew up in the Midwest and as a transplant to the Northeast and now to my undisclosed location, um, yes. you know, is, is that sh- she is completely just out of touch. And so and if the Democratic Party, if she is indeed going to emerge as the front runner, this is just one leading she indication has. of the fact that she absolutely does not understand what the majority of the country needs. She's been living, I'm sorry, home state, living in the Massachusetts bubble for far too long. And, yeah. um, and this is, you know, I, this is not going to be the path to a win. I just I don't see it at this point.
0: Story number three, Mississippi wants to make teacher tests easier. Now, I take the position that monopoly schools, you know, need some sort of standards for teachers since they don't always have an incentive to perform. There's nowhere else to go. Public schools can hire anyone and protect them from consequences for being awful many times. So, uh, you know, my principle is that if you have you do need some kind of standards for teachers, if there's nowhere else for kids to go, whereas schools of choice Too many rules and regulations stifle innovation, and therefore they shouldn't have these kinds of top-down rules. But anyway, so what Mississippi found that the teachers taking their you-gotta-pass-this-test-to-be-a-teacher test were flunking. OK, and so I love this so much, Kara. I got to read you just a little part. This guy, Clyde Reese, in the story. so painful. Okay, He says the goal is to shift. So to, 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 OK, you guys got it right. The teacher test was too hard. Too many potential teachers failing Mississippi teacher test. He says, this guy, Clyde Reese, says the goal is to shift away from measuring candidates on their recall of formulas. Previously, test takers might have had to go into the exam day having memorized the formula for dot, dot, dot unquote pause now it's going to be bob talking again what do you think they're going to say like what formula (laughs) what formula do you think the teachers were going to be expected to memorize for the test the poisson distribution and statistics maybe they meant boyle's law to predict temperature increases based on pressure changes and constant volume container what one of those no they didn't mean those formulas i will now continue the quote from mr reese Previously test takers might have had to go into the exam day having memorized the formula for how to find the area of a rectangle. Now the goal is to see if students can use uh, meaning potential teachers can use a provided formula to work for the problem. In other words, we can't ask teachers to memorize how memorize
1: how to find the area of a rectangle. You are right to be incensed, but let, let's put this in perspective here, right? So this is not the teacher test problem. This is, a, this is a a genuine, like, American literacy, teacher literacy problem. So what these tests are designed to do are simply be gatepe- gatepe- gatekeepers. I'm sorry. Former education, school of education professor talking here, right? If we do not set a high bar, and by a high bar, I mean, like. The area you know, of a rectangle is a high bar. You and read and write. Well, and so what? What are the one of the only things we really know is that teachers, and we hate to talk about test scores, right? But teachers with high test scores produce kids with high test scores, and by I mean, like you know, high SAT scores, things like yeah. that. If you can't pass a basic praxis exam, These- right? And many people have to take it one or two times. Fine, whatever. You don't take tests well, but if you can't pass these basic like things for gatekeeping that you are literate and able literate enough to teach other people how to be literate, this is a cyclical problem. We have for generations, and I'm sorry, Mississippi, but it's in Mississippi and other places produced um, a whole generation of people that are functionally, you know, reading and writing at very low levels, doing math. This is a systemic problem, and so how can we expect to produce a generation of teachers that can do these things? We are constantly hearing this talk about a teacher shortage problem in the United States. It is a teacher literacy problem. It is a high-quality teacher problem. I would rather see a great teacher who knows how to read and write and do all these things, teaching a hundred and fifty kids.
0: And imagine there are there certainly are great teachers in Mississippi who would have to be paid by law exactly the same as these teachers that can't calculate the area of a rectangle. This is this is not the sure. onion. This is not a joke. This is actually happening today in America, not not a third world country. It's happening in America that they're saying expecting potential teachers to know to multiply the width times the height of a rectangle is too asking them to know too much. That's a real th- like we got to leave that to Ph.D. physicists to, to memorize the area of a rectangle formula. We can't expect teachers to know that. All right. We will be back in a flash with the great Andrew Campanella, author of the new book, The School Choice Roadmap, right after this little musical interlude. Welcome back, everybody. Good news and bad news for you. The bad news is Kara Kandel is uh, traveling and not available for this interview. But the good news is we have Andrew Campanella on the line. And Mr. Campanella is, well, he is like a, a, a big leader in the school choice movement, not only the president of National School Choice Week, not only the author of the new upcoming book, The School Choice Roadmap. But he's also my friend. And so to this distinguished Mr. Campanella, thank you for being on the Learning Curve podcast. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mr. Bowden. I appreciate it. Okay, so there are lots of books on education policy for Ph.D. think tankers and academics to uh, hash back and forth the effects of outcomes by changing this input or that input of the sprawling complex American educational model and, you know, uh, and debate uh, the percentage point changes Uh, The School Choice Roadmap is not such a
2: book. No, and in fact, I think those people might hate the School Choice Roadmap. (laughs) And that's just fine because the book is written in a way, I hope, that normal people talk. You know, when parents sit down with their kids around the dinner table at night and talk about what happened at school in the classroom that day, are they talking about differentiated instruction? No, they're talking about what did the teacher say to you? What did you say back to the teacher? What was your interaction with your friends like? And when parents look for schools, they're not looking at different environments through the lens of all this education policy jargon. So I wanted to write a book that parents could use to help them find the right learning environment for their individual kids. Yeah,
0: actually a book designed to help real life parents and students, like actually help actual children. Like that was, this was a concept. And so I, I, yes. And so thank you for that. Now, some may be surprised that chapter uh, three of the book is called traditional public schools. Some may think that since your focus is choice, it implies you are advocating against the public schools or antagonistic toward them or seek to defund them or disparage them. And that is not in your book. In fact, you offer a profile, a glowing profile of a Burbank middle school in Houston, Texas, where atmosphere, accountability and, and achievement are themes. You don't seem to disparage
2: traditional public schools in this book. I don't. And why would I? Because there are so many inspirational traditional public schools all across this country, in every single state and in many communities that parents send their kids to and in many times actively choose for their kids. And when we talk about school choice, we need to talk about all of the options that parents have or want to be able to have for their kids. And traditional public schools are an important part of that equation, just like charter schools are, magnet schools, online public schools, private and religious schools, and homeschooling.
0: Sure. And online, you can as a part of charters and, and whatnot. Uh, in fact, part of pu- public online as well in some places. Um, so let's talk about, uh, I guess, the, the charter schools and the magnet schools are actually bordering each other as chapters in your book. And it, it, it made me just think of this issue that, you know, some people will attack charter schools with this concept that they, they say charter schools are cherry picking the best kids and bordering that chapter in your book is the other book on magnet schools that actively <laughs> cherry-pick, often, actively cherry-pick uh, the best or smartest or most talented kids. So I just wanted to get your, your sense on, I guess, some of the pushback against charters in that regard when there's another sector of public schools called magnets that do as a, as a matter of course and without controversy.
2: Well, when we're talking about Cherry picking, I think what you're referring to is that at some magnet schools, 25% of them, there are entrance tests or requirements based on academics. And at 75% of those schools, there are not. Just like there are in a small number of traditional public schools, schools that are called selective schools, where there are tests in requirements. New York City, for example, has schools like that. There are no public charter schools across the country that have any test in requirements. In fact, those tests are explicitly prohibited for public charter schools. I think that the only controversy that should exist about any type of school out there is if so many parents want a type of school in their community, why isn't it being opened?
0: hmm. And I, but I guess, you know, the reason I, I said accused is because they're it's often there's no evidence, but they will say that that's the case. And they'll also allege. And I think in some cases this has happened, where a particular charter school in one place might kind of quietly counsel out a certain family saying we really don't think Johnny is a good fit here at, uh, you know, at, at what we call cherry picking charter school, uh, you know, of America. And well, so, you know, good.
2: Yeah, I'll respond to that in saying I think counseling out is an issue at all types of schools that needs to be addressed, and it's not just public charter schools where this is a problem. It is explicitly against federal law to counsel out a student who, for example, is on an individualized education program or plan, an IEP, and that happens not just in public charter schools, but in traditional public schools. Oh, that's absolutely true. It's rare. And we don't want any student to be counseled out, which means a school telling a student or a family, you know what? This might not be a good fit for you. But if you go to this other school that's uh, set up by a district or somebody else, it might be a better fit only to get the student to leave so that the the school doesn't have to count that student's scores. I think that that we can all agree that counseling out is not helpful to families
0: um so there are in terms of just the overall percentages do you have kind of a um a breakdown for us of the numbers so uh, you know it's about six percent of the american enrollment in charter schools i believe it's about 10 percent in private schools and um i don't know if you know the other numbers uh just off the off the top of your head but uh the well in terms of in terms of private school choice programs it's lower than that it's something to 1 or 2% nationally uh, uh, so so we're, are we talking about 85% 80 to 85% in traditional public schools
2: so i'll say this if you look at active choosers which is a term i like to use because these are parents who are actively choosing education environments for their kids whether that's within the traditional public school system using what's called open enrollment programs, meaning sending your child to a district school outside of your zone or even in a different district, charters, magnet schools, online, private schools, and homeschooling. We're talking about an aggregate of about 33 percent of U.S. parents who are active choosers right now. And for the parents who are not active choosers, that doesn't mean they don't want to be. In some cases, they don't have options or choices. So the parents who are making these decisions right now, that's about a third.
0: So, so getting back to your book, which is available for pre-order right now on Amazon and other places fine books are sold called The School Choice Roadmap, uh, you offer, it's not a, a traditional book in the sense that you, do, you have worksheets in
2: this book, don't you? Explain what those are there for. So I believe that the best way to give advice to people about something like their kids who I've never met their kids is to draw on their own intuition and their own knowledge of what their children need and want, as well as who they want their kids to turn out to be. Uh, Not just a doctor, a lawyer, a fireman, a plumber, an electrician, but what type of person they want them to be, what their family's values are, is to let them write that information down let them explore that let them think about that before they even start thinking about education and the worksheets in the book are designed to help you explore for example in the first step which is evaluating your own educational experiences what you're bringing to the table in terms of your perceptions of education did you have a good experience in school did you have a bad experience in school did you learn a lot in school are yeah. there things you wish you learned and Write those things down so that you know that when you're looking at schools for your child, you are evaluating them in many ways through the lens of your own experiences. Then talk about your child. So there's a worksheet for that. Then talk about your child and write down strengths, weaknesses, hopes and dreams, things like that. There's a worksheet for that. Then there's a whole exercise you can go through to identify what you need and want in a school or learning environment. And there's lots of questions you can answer, whether it's a priority for your family or not a priority. Things like extracurricular activities, um, dual language instruction, social emotional learning, you name it, it's all explained and you can decide whether or not it's important to you. I don't want to tell people what should be important for their child. I want them to determine what's most important.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know what I think is actually most likely, the kind of person likely to listen to this Learning Curve podcast is probably fairly aware of lots of many of these things, not all of them, but that especially they, uh, some of the listeners may know another parent somewhere who's maybe not as much in the educational policy or school choice or ed reform movement. And they and this would be a great gift to them if they're saying, what is this? Or right, I have I have a child. They're getting close to school age. Uh, you know in the next year or two or three i'm not sure what to do this is the kind of, you I mean you the subtitle of the book is seven steps to finding the right school for your child it is very uh you you lay out the steps in a way that uh is b- really clear but at the same time as you said you pose questions to them so that it, it's uh, you you kind of say if you want to make this decision here are the things you might want to be thinking about how would you Think answer this question. How do you feel about that question? And in a way, it makes them develop their own their own model rather than, you know, rather than you dictating, which is, you know, kind of as you just explained. Uh, So I'm not sure there's ever been a book like this.
2: That's the reason I wrote it, Bob, is because I have talked with parents for 15 years about education and school choice in some way, shape or form. And parents have always come up to me and said, I wish the information you said in your speech or your presentation was available, written down in some form, because, you know, we don't need our hands held throughout this process. We're smart enough to figure it all out, but it would be helpful to know where to start. And that's what I wanted to do. So I wrote the school choice roadmap to be that guide for parents to cut through the jargon, to remove as much education speak as possible from this. And also to let parents know that if they want to choose something for their children that is different from the family next door or even somebody else in their own family, that's okay and that you know your child better than anybody else on this planet. And you should feel confident in your intuition. And that is the biggest message from this book, that nobody knows your child better than you do, and you need to own that power.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, most of education, of course, is a local or state issue. uh, But, uh, you know, to the degree that there are national aspects, I'd hate to invoke politics uh, in this podcast, Andrew. But uh, has there been a shift somewhat in less support for school choice from back when – You and I were kind of more starting in this movement, and Bill Clinton spoke at the National Alliance for Public Charter School Conference in 2011, and Barack Obama proposed uh, federal monies to help support, and part of the race to the top, help support the charter school movement. And fade out, fade in, we now have Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, saying he hates charter schools And we have Elizabeth Warren, who wants to stop federal funding for charter school growth in her new education proposal. Are you seeing a shift in the politics of at least the charter sector?
2: Well, I'll tell you the shift that I saw recently, and that is if you look over the last year, there has been a sustained assault on school choice from people who do not believe That parents should be able to choose different schools for their kids. And these are the same folks who not only oppose scholarship programs to make private school choices more affordable, they also regularly and vehemently oppose open enrollment programs that simply let kids go to different traditional public schools. They have thrown everything at the wall uh, to see what sticks against school choice. And the result. Is when you look at the EdNext survey, more people support school choice this year than have ever supported it in the past. And the reason, honestly, I think is because of those two words school choice. Yeah. When people hear that there could be something that they could choose in an area where there are not a lot of choices, it's hard to be opposed to that. I have not met a Democratic, Republican, or independent parent out there who has ever told me and doubtful any politician has been told this either that they don't want choices for their own children's education
0: yeah but in what they say is billionaires billionaires oh it's uh, it's, uh, other people want to enrich themselves off of
2: but you know what i think every parent in this country wants the same educational options as billionaires millionaires and people who are affluent or even even in the upper middle class i think that everybody in this country wants their children to have a great chance at success. So I don't think the messaging of school choice opponents is working. I think it's having the opposite effect. And that's a good thing because I want more families to benefit from school choice because we know that when parents actively choose schools and learning environments for their kids, their kids do better in school, are more likely to graduate, are more likely to succeed in life, and their parents are happier.
0: One big boost to private school choice programs across the country could be an upcoming Supreme Court case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. This is about uh, what have been called Blaine Amendments, which are parts of some state constitutions. Uh, I believe 38 of the 50 state constitutions have what are known as Blaine Amendments, which uh, have restricted private school choice programs uh, for schools that are religious or as as the laws often say, sectarian. It was kind of an anti-Catholicism set of amendments passed in the late 1800s. Anyway, this new Supreme Court case could obliterate those artificial barriers to private school choice programs. What do you think will happen?
2: Well, I'm not going to predict what will happen at the U.S. Supreme Court. Anything could happen there. But I do think that if the Espinosa cases decided in favor of families who want private religious school options for their children, there is still an uphill battle for these families and people who want these options in their states and communities because they still have to fight to get programs passed that will make private education more affordable and accessible. So regardless of what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court, it's never easy to expand access to different types of schools for families. It all starts with parent demand. It's not about lobbyists. It's not really even about legislators. It's about parents demanding more options and recognizing that they want them in their communities and speaking up about it. You know,
0: I got to tell you, I have a friend who otherwise would be for every aspect of school choice, but that's the one thing that sticks in his craw, which is this, you know, in his mind, it's a church and state separation thing. I just can't see tax money going to religious institutions. To him, that's the one thing he can't see. Well, you you know, know,
2: what I would say to folks like that is, listen, we can disagree on certain things. I happen to think that it doesn't make much sense when you have Medicare reimbursements going to Methodist hospital, Catholic hospitals, and things like that. Nobody seems to ever care about that. Uh, When you have Pell grants, which provide access to colleges and universities going to religious institutions of higher learning, nobody ever brings up that. But when it comes to K through 12 education, somehow that's when this is going to be a big deal. In reality, I don't think it is a big deal. And we need to recognize that religion, uh, if you want to have religion or if you don't want to have religion, is part of being an American. And parents are making these choices. It's not the government making choices for families.
0: National School Choice Week 2020 is coming up. It will be Sunday, January 26th through Saturday, February 1st. How are things shaping up for
2: National School Choice Week 2020? I'm incredibly excited for School Choice Week 2020. This is a time when parents all across the country can look at their options and make decisions for their families with enough time uh, for the next school year if they want to make a change or a choice. And it's a time for schools, learning environments, and individual families to celebrate what makes School Choice unique in their schools or in their communities. And so we are looking at nearly 50,000 independently planned events and activities all across America, school fairs, open houses, student showcases, celebrations, rallies, you name it. And the goal is to shine a positive spotlight on all of these effective education options for children.
0: The Twitter handle is SchoolChoiceWK for National School Choice Week. The Twitter handle for Mr. Campanella is at Andrew Camp. Andrew R. Camp. R. Well, oh, how did I miss that? I'm so sorry. It's Andrew R. Camp. Well, it's right on my Twitter thing. and But I, pr- I appreciate you correcting me. And by the way, just as a quiet aside to the listeners, uh, I'm quietly encouraging Andrew to record an audio version of his book. If you agree, please tweet at him and ask him to record an audio book version of the tr- School Choice Roadmap. Uh, as a, a, And I think if there's enough swelling consumer demand, he'll be forced to buckle under to the pressure and record an audio version. His book will be available January 21st, but as I said, it is available right now for pre-order. It's called The School Choice Roadmap, and our thanks to Andrew Campanella.
2: Thank you, Bob. I appreciate
0: it. Welcome back to the Learning Curve Podcast. It's now time for our little sort of opinion-y stuff where we do a commentary and a tweet of the week. We begin with Dr. Kendall. Uh, with the tweet. Dr. Kendell, you may proceed.
1: Yeah. So I am taking this tweet from our friend Jarrell Bradford at 50 Can, and I don't think we even need to say anything about this tweet because we tried to say it all and he said it better. He says in his latest article for the New York Daily News, quote, a woman whose brand is standing up for the powerless is here comforting the powerful and hindering the needy. And of course, he's talking about Senator Elizabeth Warren. So, enough said.
0: And commentary of the week will be from Christian Bernard of Reason.com. It's titled, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez accidentally makes the case for school choice. And what he says here is that- It's far from clear how any of the reforms championed by AOC and Bernie will truly challenge the public education status quo. But the young congresswoman shared a childhood story about her family, how her family made financial sacrifices to leave the Bronx, go to the suburbs. She wrote, my family made a really hard decision. That's when I got my first taste of a country who allows their kids' destiny to to be determined by the zip code they are born in. AOC opposing zip code school determination and Love educational Just walked
1: right into it and had no idea did she <laughs>
0: <laughs> so i guess she doesn't like zip code school assignments so way to go aoc we're on board with that <laughs>
1: whoever thought you would hear that from the mouth of bob
0: <laughs> Just <laughs> all giant. right and as smart as it was to tune into this episode eight of the learning curve oh my goodness episode nine is coming next week our guest will be frank Edelblut, the commissioner of new hampshire department of education and we're going to hear so much about all the things that go on in running a state school system. But that's all for now. I'm Bob Bowden of Choice Media, and
1: I'm Kara Candell. <laughs> see you next week. Hear you next week.
2: We'll see you later.